0: Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Mark.
1: And I'm Bethan. And I bet that sounds so great for everyone to hear us. Ah, I love it. Welcome back. I'm excited.
0: I wanted to say it because I've not got to say it for for nearly a month. So, yeah, I am back uh, just in time for the season nine finale. Uh, we will then be back for season 10 premiere on Wednesday, the 13th of September. So there will be a couple of weeks of, of a gap. But, yeah, it's so good to be back. I'm I'm doing much better. And I just wanted to say a huge thank you to all of our listeners, uh, one, for their patience, but two, for, for those that got in touch. We We have honestly got the best listeners. And I had so many messages, and people even sent stuff in the post, like Carol, which was just so lovely. So, yeah, I was really touched, and if I've not responded to you yet, I will absolutely respond to all of those messages on Facebook, on Instagram. So, yeah, a huge thank you from me, and it honestly feels great to be back. Um, Well done, and thank you for holding the fort, Betham.
1: Oh my gosh, don't be silly. I've had months of maternity leave twice, so... You being poorly for a few weeks is no big shakes, but I'm really glad that you're feeling better, and it's so nice to have you back. It's lovely. I definitely want to echo, though, what you said. Our listeners, genuinely, you guys feel like our friends as well, which can sound... I sound sarcastic because I'm British when I try and say nice things. We think we've said this before. I try and say nice things, and I think I sound sarky, but genuinely, it's just so lovely seeing names pop up, and then the messages, and we chat, and... Yeah, you guys are like, like friends to us. So thank you. Thank you very much.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, let's do some Patreon thank yous and then we will launch into our season nine finale.
1: Can I say their names? You, you can, yeah. Or do you want to say it. their names because you're back?
0: No, I'll let you do the honours, Beth, and you can butcher them.
1: I, I'm really sorry, but I think I might. So thank you very, very much to our newest Patreon supporters. We have Anna Morris, Chloe and Leila and Jacob Sardazi. I'm really hoping I said your surname right. Thank you very much, guys.
0: Uh, If you would like to join these guys, all you need to do is head over to patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast and check out all of the benefits that we reward you with in return for your support of us uh, financially, which does really help to keep the show going. So thank you for that. So this week in our season nine finale, I'm not sure if I've mentioned that enough times yet, we are heading to rural Somerset to explore an unusual unsolved murder that garnered significant public and media attention back in 2000. 10.
1: Oh no, it's Unsolved. It's this Unsolved, is which we've issue. not
0: done for a long time. And I mm-hmm. know some people don't love an Unsolved uh, because it leaves them with that real frustration, which I oh, do understand. It's horrible, but isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. But, but equally, this is a case that I wanted to bring to everybody's attention that listens to our show because it happened five miles away from where I used to live at a time when I used to live there. And um, yeah, it's just one of those weird unsolved murders where it kind of hits you a little bit and brings it closer to home quite literally geographically and I just have visions that maybe I have shopped in the same supermarket as the perpetrator in this crime for example and that just kind of freaks me out.
1: You definitely could have like stopped at traffic lights while they crossed the road or anything if it's that close in proximity.
0: Yeah and they're they're most likely walking around, unless they've died or unless they're in prison for another unrelated crime, they are most likely walking around amongst us just going about their daily life with this terrible us. Hashtag they walk among us. Great show. Great show, great great Um, title, yeah.
1: But yeah, that's really creepy. I feel like I recognise the name from your title of the episode, but I don't think I know the case. And I remember, I think, if it's the thing I'm thinking of, I think I remember you talking about this in in sort of when we were at work together so i'm really intrigued by this can't wait to hear and
0: and i'm pretty sure i talked about it in a, a, a relatively early episode of crime wave so i think some of it might come back to you because i think there was a fresh appeal last year and we we touched on it as a result
1: that might be it as well there we go
0: This strange tale was set in motion when a friendly and popular, yet unassuming pensioner from a rural village was savagely murdered in truly gruesome fashion in his own home. This grisly event left a community haunted and the police confounded. As the subsequent investigation progressed, detectives ventured into a realm of shadows and secrets with twisted paths of evidence and rampant speculation at every turn, guided by the echoes of a bizarre mystery that, as I have said already, remains unsolved. It was a high-profile murder case that gripped the country. To this day, we do not know why Barry Rubery died, but we do know that despite being described as an apparently ordinary gentleman, living a relatively normal life in the countryside... He was in fact anything but. Iron Acton is a picturesque town nestled in the countryside of the picturesque county of Somerset in the UK. Rich in history, it exudes a charming and quaint atmosphere with its cobbled streets, well-preserved medieval architecture and lush green surroundings. The centrepiece of the town is the historic St James Church, an architectural marvel that stands tall as a symbol of the town's heritage. Residents and visitors alike enjoy a close knit community feel, engaging in traditional village events and exploring the scenic landscapes through tranquil walking paths. With its timeless beauty and welcoming spirit, Iron Acton beckons travellers seeking a serene retreat in the heart of England. Those who reside in Iron Acton have long been proud of their little community that exists in this truly beautiful part of the world.
1: I love how you've described this because I can really picture it.
0: It's just one of those, a lot of us will have been on holiday in Somerset or similar counties like Sussex, for example. And it's just one of those, yeah, traditional English villages, a bit like Morton, which I know people will be more familiar with now. Yeah, so uh, we did an episode on that and there's a BBC drama that's been on very recently, which a lot of you have been talking about.
1: And it kind of reminds me of when we went to Orkney recently as well, just this real small town feel.
0: Yeah, a real sense of community and a real sense of, with the events that follow, who in this community is responsible for this murder? Is it, is it one of you? Is it one of my neighbours? 68-year-old Barry Rubery was one such friendly-faced gentleman who loved his little home in Iron Acton as much as he loved the town's sense of community and friendship. He was described by his friends and neighbours as a very kind, generous and approachable man who always wore a smile and would do anything for anyone. Indeed, his family members echoed this sentiment and praised him as a much-loved dad and grandfather. Mr. Rubery was a retired civil engineer and had also worked as a farmer. He was a country bumpkin through and through and simply adored living close to nature, away from the noise, stress and hustle and bustle of the larger cities. He had two grown-up children, a son and a daughter, and five grandchildren. He had divorced his wife many years prior, when his children were young, but it's understood that the family remained very close and had a strong and loving relationship. Indeed, Barry Rubery was a family-orientated man who enjoyed the simple pleasures in life. Barry lived alone in a small cottage on the edge of the town, surrounded by open rolling fields and beautiful countryside. He owned several acres of the land that backed onto his home, and Barry filled his days tending to that land, caring for his animals, taking long walks in nature, and mingling with his nearby friends and neighbours. There was no denying that Barry Rubery was a popular man, but he was also a natural entrepreneur who had an eye for business. He'd always been a hard worker, and over the years he'd acquired valuable assets, including the cottage in Iron Acton, which he owned outright, and the acres of land that surrounded it. Although long retired, Barry was relatively wealthy and made respectable amounts of money through various legitimate streams of income. His friends often joked that he was Somerset' dancer to Delboy owing to his forays into the scrap metal trading business and because of the way he was always looking to obtain valuable goods for a cheap price to then sell on at a profit and I just loved this description of him because I'm a massive it Only and horses to Delboy, yeah. And I imagine he would have been in so many ways, not just because of that brutal entrepreneurial spirit and really looking to make a quick profit at every turn, but also because Del Boy was this real family man who put his family first and was just a nice guy and everybody knew him and he knew everybody and he was loved.
1: And the community and yeah.
0: Yeah, a real real part of that community and Barry would have absolutely been the same. I know he was from what I've read. Barry was always on the hunt for new business opportunities, and it was this keenness for wealth acquisition that ultimately led Barry Rubery to join the globally infamous network known as the Freemasons. Freemasonry is a fraternal organization with origins dating back to the late 16th or early 17th century. It's evolved over the centuries into a complex and widespread movement with a focus on moral and ethical development, personal growth, and community service. Freemasonry is characterised by its symbolism, its rituals and its hierarchical structure.
1: And this is another reason why this is such a Mark episode. I know you've just been fascinated by the Freemasons forever, haven't you?
0: I have, and I I know we've got a listener. I won't name him, who is a Freemason. And do we? That's fascinating. Yeah, I meant to get. You'll know him, Beth, and I meant to get in touch with him to ask him a bit more about Freemasonry. Um, But yeah, hopefully he'll be listening to this, and hopefully get in touch and tell us a bit more if we've missed anything. But it's a fascinating subject, Freemasonry. There's a lot of conspiracy theories around it, but those who are Freemasons absolutely. Really try to dispel those myths uh, around Freemasonry, but it persists, doesn't it? We have to be honest, those rumors and and those um, conspiracy theories do persist persist. Freemasons are organized into local groups called lodges. Each lodge typically corresponds to a specific geographical area and is responsible for initiating new members, conducting rituals, and fostering a sense of fraternity and brotherhood amongst its exclusively male members. The structure of the group is divided into different degrees or levels, with the most commonly recognised being the three degrees of Entered Apprentice, Fellow Craft and Master Mason. As members progress through these degrees, they learn symbolic lessons and gain insights into the values and principles of Freemasonry. Freemasonry has often been associated with secrecy, which has led to misconceptions and, as I said earlier, conspiracy theories. And while certain aspects of Masonic ceremonies and practices are kept private to maintain their impact, which is understandable, the organisation itself is not a secret society. Masonic lodges are typically open to the public for various events, and many Masons are open about their membership. And I just wanted to say at this point, so with Freemasons, I think... You know, I I don't know, I'm not an expert on them, but I think they've probably got... Freemasonry has got this reputation as this sinister society, one, because of some of the ritualistic uh, ceremonies that they carry out, which hark back to the, you know, late 16th, early 17th century when it was founded. But I think also it is essentially a networking organisation. And I, I dare say in the past it has been the case where people have got into trouble with the police, for example, and there is a senior police officer in their Masonic Lodge or the neighbouring lodge who puts a good word in and gets a case thrown out of court or something like that. So I would say some of these links and networks have been abused, uh, but that's not really what it's about. But you can't stop bad people taking advantage of those networking I think opportunities. that's the
1: thing, isn't it? No matter what your um, community... There's always the opportunity, like you said, for someone who wants to do something out of the confines of the law and wants to get away with things. If they know the, I won't want to say the right people, but if you know the right people, you can. That's not necessarily anything to do with that organisation. That's to do with the people, at you know, in, in the midst of it. Um, and the rituals and stuff, I think it just can sometimes be... bit scary to people who are outside of that because they're not used to it or they don't understand it but it's tradition so um I I always find that really fascinating because I don't know if I've really mentioned before but I have got a religion and when I go to church so many of like the rituals and things are so so old and I'm just it's just natural to me like you stand up when you stand up, you sit down, you kneel down, you say the same things back to like in, in kind of answer to stuff. And then sometimes I do think to myself, God, somebody who doesn't know this whole situation must think that we're like brainwashed in a cult or something like it must look so crazy to somebody who's never witnessed it before.
0: Well that, that was a parallel I, I was going to draw I think there are sim- similarities with different religions in terms of some of those ceremonies and as an outsider looking in you may view these two sort of organisations or principles and practices in, in a similar way so yeah I'm trying to have a real I think the Roman Catholic mic. Church
1: can also have those those kind of like rumours and stuff yeah, as well yeah. and obviously there have been a lot of truth as well there's been a lot of people who have abused positions of power and it it's not you know it's not just rumor
0: but it's like you say you get that in any walk of society any organization there will be an abuse of power so uh yeah it's it's not the free freemasons aren't immune from that in the same way the church isn't immune from that so yeah it's i think it's just one of those things that it's interesting to explore in detail and you can go down a rabbit hole with Freemasonry and it will take you in a particular direction if if you want it to but I'm kind of open to uh, you know I'd I'd love to know a bit more about it I think it is a fascinating subject. It's unclear when exactly Barry Rubery joined the Freemasons or who inducted him into the organisation. This isn't very surprising given the group's inherent secrecy as such it's not clear what Barry's role was or what his position was within the Freemasons. However, according to those closest to Barry, the Freemasons were a very big part of his life and his involvement with the organisation saw him attending various events several nights a week. So this ultimately was the backbone of his social life. He had his family, of course, but this was his social life. Barry also recruited a select few of his closest and most trusted friends into the group. Although Barry wasn't permitted to openly discuss the details of what exactly he was doing within the Freemasons, it's understood that he cared deeply for the group and often spoke about how happy and grateful he felt to be a part of something so special. In the days leading up to his demise, at the beginning of April in 2010, Barry's family recalled that he suddenly seemed distracted, as if something was weighing heavily on his mind. He seemed worried and agitated and became uncharacteristically short-tempered. His daughter attempted to sit him down and ask him what was going on, but he declined to elaborate, telling her that he was unable to divulge anything, but also assuring her that he had it under control. His daughter simply assumed that it had something to do with the Freemasons, which would explain why he wasn't able to explain anything. A carpet fitter who visited Barry's home to carry out some work later reported that Barry had a legally owned double-barrelled shotgun propped up against his front door. When asked why it had been there, he replied, in case the buggers come in. But he didn't say who exactly he was concerned about.
1: Gosh, this is so worrying, isn't it? Like suddenly changing behaviour and character, doing things like that as well. Like, that's, that is really worrying, isn't it?
0: Yeah, he's looking over his shoulder. That's his poor family. Absolutely the uh, impression we're getting here. Despite all of this though, by the weekend of the 23rd of April, Barry seemed to have snapped out of whatever was bothering him and he seemed much more relaxed as he spent the Sunday afternoon with his family. When his daughter again asked if everything was okay, Barry simply smiled and said that everything had now been resolved. A few days later, on Wednesday the 28th of April, Barry spent the day at home tending to his land and his animals. A friend who had been to his cottage that day later recorded that he seemed relaxed and comfortable. Everything seemed normal and Barry appeared to be much more relaxed than he had been over the previous days. Whatever worries had been bothering him had clearly subsided, at least on the surface. That night, at around 8pm, Barry left his cottage to attend a Freemasonry inauguration ceremony in Downend, an affluent residential outer suburb of Bristol, just six miles away from his home in Ironacton and an area that I know really, really well
1: the idea of this inauguration ceremony as well kind of you know we were talking about rituals and um, you know sometimes with religion if you're not part of that religion you think that the rituals can look really strange and this is kind of the idea of this inauguration reminds me of watching the coronation of the new king not long ago because I wanted to watch that I'm not particularly much of a royalist I don't know much about the royal family I'm not really one way or the other about them but I did find it a really fascinating part of our history and I thought do you know what I've never seen someone be um, crowned before coronated um so I thought right I'm gonna watch this and that was similar all these people doing certain jobs the that random politician who had to carry a sword and I had to then start googling like who is this penny woman and why is she carrying a sword and why do they give him that specific ring or that specific crown all of these things so so fascinating obviously this is going to be at a lower level this is not the king of a country but i can imagine some of this inauguration would be fascinating to an outsider
0: yeah and and similar like you say similar to the king's coronation it reminds me the whole freemasonry thing reminds me a little bit of the traitors which some people will have watched that other people of course won't have but there's a a UK version, an American version, an Australian version, I've seen most of them. And it's, um, it's kind of basically a game show, but there's a lot of symbolism and ceremonial stuff. They dress in robes. So that kind of is what pings in, into my mind when I think about some of these ceremonies and these rituals. So this evening, let's go back to that night, there was to be a ritual, a speech, and then the lavish dinner at the lodge in which all members were expected to attend. Before leaving to go to the event, Barry drove his Land Rover to the home of his friend Steve Isles to return a circuit breaker that he'd borrowed the previous week. Mr Isles would later tell the police that Barry seemed his usual happy and jovial self and said that he was excited for the ceremony that he was about to attend. From there, one of his fellow Freemasons picked him up in a car and drove him to the Masonic Lodge in Downend, where the ceremony was taking place. Several members who were there with Barry that night later told the police that the ceremony and the dinner went well and that Barry had been observed laughing and chatting happily, as he always did at these events. He didn't seem worried or scared and seemed totally relaxed, as so many people have said in the run-up to his tragic murder. The entire event was a pleasant and enjoyable affair and there was no drama, there were no issues. The event ended at around 10.30pm. Barry got in the back of the car that was being driven back to Ein acton arriving just after 1045 Barry was dropped off at the end of his long driveway. A friend of Barry's who was in the car with him later recalled how the outside of Barry's home usually had exterior security lights on during the night. But that evening, the lights were off and the house was barely even visible through the darkness.
1: That's really, No, really because that, that
0: is deliberate. And the, that man would have been in the car many times when Barry had been dropped off from a Masonic do late at night when it's pitch black. And that would have just been very normal to him that that house was lit up by the security lights. And this time, possibly, probably for the first time, the lights were off. So Barry's friend thought this was odd, but didn't mention it, which is completely understandable because you probably just think a bulb's blown. You
1: only really think about it because something happened and you go, oh God, that was weird.
0: This wasn't the only weird event though, because uh, usually at the end of a Freemasonry event, Barry would invite his friends into the house for a glass of whiskey. But on this occasion, he had plans to get up early the following morning. So he said, basically, you know, I'm just going to go in and get some sleep. I can't. Uh, invite you in and hang around for a drink the driver left as soon as Barry was out of the car and didn't see him enter the house this would be the last time that Barry Rubery was seen alive
1: god that's so sad
0: isn't it and a 68 year old man a grandfather a father a friend to many in that community an integral part of that community and and of the Freemasons the following morning Barry's close friend Steve Isles went to the cottage to drop off some tools that belonged to Barry Steve let himself in through front gates and as he walked down Barry's driveway he saw a black object lying on the ground. As he got closer he realised that the object was the distinctive Freemasonry briefcase that Barry would always take to him to all of the group's events. And this was odd, the Freemasons were extremely strict about discretion and secrecy and this briefcase likely held highly sensitive information about Freemasonry and the lodge in Down end and Barry would have known that, so it was very unlike him to leave items unattended for somebody to find. Steve decided not to touch the briefcase to avoid upsetting Barry. Instead, he left it there and proceeded towards the cottage.
1: Oh, what a nice friend as well, to like know that about him and to go, do you know what, I'll from, from our point of view, that's really good from a crime scene yeah, um, yeah, protective yeah. thing, but he wouldn't have been thinking of that, and actually I'm glad he... He thought of his friend's just his friend's privacy.
0: Yeah, I, I think also he, you know, he's not wanting to embarrass Barry and call him out on that and say, Barry, you left that down there or you know, we'll come on to it shortly. But Barry had had a few drinks, obviously, this evening, so he might have just been a little bit absent-minded and might not have wanted to have had a reminder that he'd had a few drinks and been a bit impaired and that had resulted in him not uh, pr- closely protecting that briefcase. So, yeah, it's a, it was a lovely thing for Steve to do. Steve knocked on the front door of the cottage but got no response, so he went round to the side of the house and let himself in through the second gate to go and knock on the back door. At the side of the cottage, Steve saw a large puddle of what he believed was vomit, partially covered by a strip of fabric. Steve figured that Barry had possibly gotten heavily drunk at his Freemasons event, which was strange. This was unlike Barry, who did not habitually drink excessively. So of course he'd, you know, socialize and have a few drinks. But yeah, you know, this Steve is just kind of thinking, well, you know, I wasn't there. Um, I don't think Steve's a Freemason. Um, So Steve wasn't there, but he knew that Barry was going to that event. So he's just kind of thinking, yeah, Barry's got back late. Um, He's obviously had quite a lot to drink and he's been sick as he's kind of entering his cottage. We've all done it. You know, I won't make a big deal out of it. I don't want to embarrass him. But he kind of, yeah, he's thinking this is a bit weird because Barry doesn't really do that. Steve did recall that the previous night, Barry had been particularly excited about the Masonic ceremony as it was a special occasion for the group and decided that, yeah, you know, maybe on this occasion, Barry had had quite a few drinks uh, more than he ordinarily would and that he was quite drunk. And yeah, he's, he's just vomited. We've all done it or most of us have done it and regretted it the following morning. Steve considered leaving to let Barry sleep off his inevitable hangover. However, at the last minute, he decided that it was probably better to at least check on his friend to make sure he had made it safely into the house, which again I think is a, you know, a really nice thing to do and the right thing to do and an instinctive thing as well to just check on that friend. You've put two and two together. The briefcase has been abandoned. There's vomit close to the entrance of the house barry had a do last night that he was really excited about has he had too much to drink i'll let him just sleep off that hangover and pretend i was never here actually no let's just check his breathing is okay so he does that as steve approached the back door of the cottage he noticed that one of barry's shoes was on the floor and he also noticed that several plant pots had been smashed close by a large garden table had been flipped onto its side and several chairs had also been knocked over and now a creeping sense of dread enveloped Steve. Something wasn't right. As Steve walked past Barry's rear conservatory, he happened to glance through the window and what he saw made him physically recoil in horror. Barry Ruber's dead body, lay face down in the middle of the conservatory in a very large pool of blood. His hands had been tied behind his back with metal wire and electrical flex and his ankles had also been bound with plastic cables before being hog-tied together to render him helpless. He'd then been beaten to death. Barry was fully clothed, but his clothing was torn and dishevelled, a clear indicator that he'd been involved in a heavy struggle with his killer.
1: God, this is so, so premeditated as well to, to fully... Um, get him to a point where he's hogtied to then kill him as well like that's not you know you're not gonna think that he's accidentally come and disturbed a burglar or something this is horrendous and I don't know if you will go on to this or if you know if you don't go on to this but had the killer taken the metal wire electrical flex plastic cables and cable ties whatever it is that from his home, or had they come prepared?
0: I, I think they would come prepared with that. From, yeah, because from it sounds I like know, the yeah. sort of
1: thing that you would. Yeah. Oh my god, that's awful, and you can just imagine like it's you just like glancing through the window and you see that like that is going to stay with you for the rest of your life. And it's poor Steve to have to witness this of his friend. It's
0: horrific, and it's it's to be hogtied like that is. It's one of the most incapacitating ways to be tied up so you're so incredibly vulnerable once you've been tied up in that way and then barry has been yeah just brutally beaten to death quite literally and he's just there sort of sat or lay at this very awkward angle because of the way he's tied up in a pool a massive pool of his own blood so that scene yeah i mean you know it's an understatement to say that it would stay with steve it's it's just uh A mind-numbingly, mind-bending scene to come across. You're not going to be able to process that. But Steve did call the police and they attended the cottage and, of course, a murder investigation was then launched. Detectives from Avon and Somerset Police cordoned off the scene and began scouring the outside of the property for clues. They were trying to understand Barry's final movements. Investigators pieced together the clues and theorised that Barry's assailant had deliberately killed the lights outside the house so as to remain hidden under the cover of darkness. Barry had then been set upon as he walked through the side gate. The broken parts and various garden items that had been strewn around the place indicated that a ferocious struggle had ensued before Barry had been overpowered and dragged, possibly unconscious at this point, into the conservatory. The vomit on the floor which belonged to Barry further validated this theory as it's common for people to throw up as they go into shock after sustaining traumatic injuries, especially after receiving heavy blows to the head or abdomen. And it it is twofold. It is the shock in itself of being set upon when you least expect it and knowing that, you know, you're going to be brutally assaulted as a very minimum here is enough to make you vomit. But then the physical assault as well so being hit in the stomach for example particularly if barry had had a couple of drinks and food absolutely not surprising that that he vomited all over the the kind of entrance to to the house and just makes me really sad as well because you know we shouldn't know that detail and we know it and it's an important part of it because it does show that barry was probably conscious initially But yeah, it just just makes me really sad, because it's quite undignified, and obviously that's not Barry's fault, but yeah, it's just one of those weird details that, that is hard to hear. The lead pathologist determined that Barry had been killed by repeated blunt force trauma to the head, which had caused catastrophic and fatal brain injuries. Steve Isles, that's Barry's friend who discovered his body, later told the media that Barry had been beaten so badly that he was practically unrecognisable. So Barry had obviously lay on that conservatory floor for, I don't know exactly how long, but you know certainly many hours. Um, so his body would have swelled in that time because of such a savage beating. The positioning of Barry Rubery's body struck the detectives as an extremely significant clue as to the motives behind his murder. He'd been found lying face down with his hands bound tightly behind his back with those cable ties. His ankles had also been bound and tied to his wrists as we've sort of alluded to with him being hogtied. But strangely his right trouser leg had been deliberately rolled up above his knee and his body had been laid out in a strange and unnatural position which was likely done post-mortem. Even Barry's friend, Steve Isles, who discovered his body, would later describe the scene as intentionally ritualistic. And he felt strongly that the killing had been the end result of some bizarre ritual or process. And of course... Oh, that, that could,
1: that's really yeah. weird. That's really, really strange. Yeah. Like to have an odd positioning.
0: Yeah. And that could, um, that could be the case. But it could be a coincidence, couldn't it, in the struggle that that... Trouser leg had been pulled up above his knee on one leg. That could just be a random might not symbolise anything.
1: Yeah, but I don't know, like it just it's a weird thing to do anyway. Yeah. Like yeah, one it trouser is. leg yeah. rolled up over your knee anyway. So surely it has some symbolism because unless there was symbolism of like a sexual nature, which would make sense then if this was a sexual killing that and that that clearly isn't. No. It's just a very odd thing. So it must have something to do with it, surely.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, retain an open mind, and we don't know. And the mm, the question, yeah. really, and
1: there's me like it must do. It must well, do. It, no it, open mind it here. Absolutely just, it could. does. And that, that's the whole
0: point. <laughs> why why there's two of but us yeah, on this podcast so that we can balance out. You know one opinion against the other, I don't like that this
1: isn't solved, Mark, and I know that it's not solved. This is horrible. I really want to know what happened to him i
0: mean it's it's horrific for his son and daughter, their children, mm-hmm. so Barry's grandchildren, all of his friends as well to know that's unsolved. I find it difficult to know it's unsolved, one because it's frustrating, it's just so frustrating to cover a case when it's unsolved, but two, because, yeah, I lived five miles away from where this happened. Um, For seven years I lived there and went around these different locations and yeah I just kind of think did I ever walk past his killer? Uh, Somebody I am sure in that community knows what happened and is probably responsible, it's got to be. But who? That was the question. Who would want to kill Barry Rubery? By all accounts he was a popular and well-liked gentleman who had no enemies The police began interviewing Barry's closest friends of course and his relatives too and they were trying to build a profile of his lifestyle, who he associated with and what kind of business dealings he was involved with. Naturally detectives soon uncovered his status as a Freemason and began working on the possibility that perhaps his killer was also a member. Barry's involvement with the Freemasons was a huge part of his life, but he saw his membership as an opportunity to network, to socialise and to get involved with business opportunities, which is really normal when you are a Freemason. As far as Barry's family were concerned, nobody had any motive to cause him any harm. The violent and bizarre attack left detectives scratching their heads as they tried to put all of the pieces of the puzzle together to try and understand how a friendly old man ...ended up being savagely battered to death in his own home. The police heard that, despite Barry's age... ...he was fit and strong and had trained as a boxer. He was certainly no pushover... ...and would not have gone down without a tremendous fight... And the police deduced that the attack was perpetrated by not just one, but probably two individuals, or maybe even more than that. Which does make sense, because Barry was a strapping guy, you know, forget the fact he's 68 years old, he's a fit, strapping, big guy, didn't drink excessively, wasn't that impaired and would have put up a fight, and and clearly did put up a fight, and for him to be incapacitated and tied up and all of that, it's highly unlikely that one individual would have been able to do that. Inside the house, Barry's attackers had ransacked drawers and cupboards, and it was later ascertained that they had stolen several items of value, including a gold Masonic pocket watch, an old Makita drill, keys a Nokia 3310 mobile phone, this was 2010, and an extension lead. All of this led the police to briefly believe that Barry may have interrupted burglars, leading to a violent confrontation. And he lived in an isolated location, so again, you know, that's believable that a burglary was taking place. Maybe they'd uh, kept track of Barry's movements and knew that he was going to be out that night, so uh, decided to commit a burglary and it just went wrong. However, there were obvious weaknesses with this theory. Despite the fact that there were a number of valuable items missing, which had clearly been taken, there were also a variety of much more valuable items which had been completely ignored, such as gold rings and a wad of cash that had been taken out of a drawer but then casually tossed aside. And to me that is damning that is not a burglary they've not gold rings for example could be a bit more difficult to fence they shouldn't be they should be pretty easy but fair enough you might leave those but a wad of cash that's pretty easy to get rid of
1: it's a weird thing to leave isn't it really like if, weird it would be it wouldn't be so weird if they hadn't found it they just hadn't got round to that that area but to toss it aside is just very odd it,
0: it really says to me that this was a ransacking of barry's home to deliberately hunt for something yeah. and yeah the money Agreed. was just an inconvenience well i'm not going to take that because i don't need it and that's not what i'm here for so you know that clearly wasn't the motivation the motivation was to hunt for something that they believed barry had in his home Owing to this, the police investigators theorised that Barry had been murdered by someone he knew personally and that his killers knew that he would be coming home alone. Furthermore, the police strongly believed that his murderers had been looking for a particular item in his home that was personal to Barry or that he had that, you know, maybe belonged to someone else or was incriminating about someone else. So that was very much, quite quickly, the theory that the police started to pursue. And also we have to accept that very possibly Barry had been bound... And this ransacking was taking place and there could have been an element of torture in Barry, we're looking for X. Where is it? You are to tell us where it is. We will find it, but if you don't cooperate, there will be consequences.
1: And like the beating gets more severe as he doesn't answer or something along those lines as well, potentially. Or
0: just goes too far or they find what they need. Barry knows who they are at this point. And there is no way that they can leave there with Barry alive, who would then be able to go to the police. That It's too late for that now, so they have no choice but to murder him so that their one witness is, is out of the equation. The investigators soon realised that whoever had killed Barry had taken great care to cover their tracks. There were no fingerprints, no DNA evidence, and none of the local CCTV cameras had managed to pick up any strange movements at that time. The whole event had a very planned and deliberate feel to it, and that's impressive, I think, in such a savage beating to have not left any DNA evidence, no fingerprints. there was no c c t v cameras in the local area that had picked up any strange movements, so you know there were obviously i hate to hate the thought of this, but you know they could have been they could have even been there in kind of hazmat type suits full protective suits to prevent any hair follicles hair strands have falling you out. watched
1: the program wolf no oh my gosh because i thought that was where you'd got this idea from you um i know you mentioned like should i watch it or not and i said you definitely should because it's incredible um i'm not going to say any more then but um yeah maybe they have maybe they have literally planned this to the minute detail and I think
0: I think what's so disturbing for me is that Barry turning up at that home eventually seeing his assailants and if they were in outfits like that you know you're fucked even somebody with the most basic forensic knowledge would know that they are suited up because they can't leave a trace here so what is what is coming for me and it reminds me of a an old British film I saw which was a I think it might have been about The um, Essex Boys murder, which we covered a while ago, and um, there was a scene in that film, I think, where they're uh, at—it's you know, out of hours at a nightclub, something like that, or a pub. And one of the drug dealers, I think, takes up takes somebody up to uh, a room upstairs in the pub and the entire room has been covered in tarpaulin, the entire room. Oh, like, and this,
1: like Dexter style, yeah, and the you man, know that yeah. that's not a room you want to go into. The
0: victim walks into that room, You know, it takes him a second to process what, what it looks like and then he's like, fuck, I know what's coming. And then, it, of course, he is shot and blood goes all over the place but the whole room is protected from that blood splash. So no DNA evidence is left. So you know, I just think it's it. it Just yeah, I I had that in mind, and I just thought, did did they wear something like that? Did Barry see that, and did he have that moment of realization of oh God, what's going to happen to me now? I really hope not. The police did later hear that Barry had been concerned and agitated in the lead up to his murder, and that he had kept a shotgun propped up by his door. The police were keen to get to the bottom of why Barry, who was normally a very relaxed and laid back individual, had suddenly become so anxious and worried in the days leading up to his death. This is a real lead, isn't it, to pursue? Given his nature, it was likely that whatever he was worried about was a legitimate threat to his well-being and quite possibly linked to whoever had killed him. So this comes through loud and clear. This is a very normal guy, a family man, a friend, a member of the community this isn't you know he's quite relaxed a normal fun loving guy and then yeah in the days building up to it he's been very worried anxious agitated there's a gun propped up by his door Uh, he's worried someone's coming for him so there's a link here several individuals from within Barry's inner circle were interviewed however Barry had declined to disclose a reason for his anxiety to anybody so none of them were able to come up with an explanation as to why Barry was so anxious in those days leading up to his murder. This line of inquiry was followed up rigorously for several days before the frustrated detectives realised that it was taking them nowhere and they were forced to pursue other lines of inquiry. However, before long, the leads dried up and they were left at a dead end. After 18 months of fruitless detective work, the case went completely cold. However, the question remains, who killed Barry Rubery? And why? 13 years later, the police, the media and Barry's family are still hoping to figure that out one day. The investigation into the murder was frustrating and brief and failed to produce even a single suspect, let alone an arrest. However, there is still no shortage of theories regarding what exactly happened that night and the majority of people believe the Freemasons know much more than they're letting on.
1: I think that's interesting though because he was a valued member of their community so I feel like... They're not they're not Batman, are they? No, the Freemasons. No. It's not like they're gonna have just gone and done some vigilante justice, got him justice and then left it. They will have they'll all be family people too. So if they did know anything, then surely they would have made even if they couldn't come out properly and give information to the police because of the secrecy around their rituals, surely they would have found some way to tell the police what they knew.
0: Yeah.
1: I can't see I can't see the Freemasons knowing stuff and then it not actually helping to solve his murder
0: i think what we've also learned in all of the episodes of seeing red that we've covered and all of the other cases that we've never covered that we have read about and are fascinated by books we've read tv shows we've seen reconstructions on crime watch i think what i've definitely learned over the years and what all of our listeners i'm sure will have learned is that we never really know what's going on in somebody's private life particularly if they live on their own for example Um, we don't know what what they do, what that private life is like, we don't even know potentially who they're seeing uh, romantically or not, all sorts of things sometimes come out after somebody's murdered that that people would would never have believed and that's not the case here, we we don't know anything but I'm just saying there could have been other aspects potentially to Barry's life that we're not aware of and I don't want to speculate anymore because it's not fair to do that but I'm just saying in general terms, quite often that that is the case, that there is a lot that we don't know about. So I suppose what I'm saying is, yes, the Freemasons were, were questioned, didn't know anything. But that's, that could have been Barry's whole life, them and his family. But it could have been them, his family and something else that nobody knows about that led to this terrible night of torture and murder. Several high-ranking members from within Barry's Lodge of Freemasons were questioned extensively. However, there was no clear evidence that pertained to Freemasonry involvement. By all accounts, Barry Rubery was a valued member of the organisation who had only friends and no enemies amongst the lodge. The police had earlier been puzzled by the fact that Barry's killers had taken some items from the house but ignored others. Given Barry's reputation as a wheeler-dealer who liked to acquire items of value and then sell them on for a profit, was it possible that he had taken something unlawfully that didn't belong to him, and that his murderer or murderers had aimed to retrieve the item and teach Barry a harsh and brutal lesson in the process? Or perhaps accidentally killed him in the process? Another popular theory is that Barry had inadvertently attracted the wrong kind of attention through his business dealings. So he was known to sell scrap metal, and it's understood that this venture often had him dealing with unsavoury characters. I mean, fucking hell, scrap metal. I don't want to tarnish everybody with the same brush, but... In my experience, a lot of people that are involved in scrap metal are involved in dodgy dealings. I'm not saying that's always the case, but it happens a lot. Um, really, yeah. I don't really
1: know anybody who sells scrap metal. There's a guy who comes around our street, and he sounds—he sort of like does like a siren out, yeah. Thing, kind of, kind of, have your scrap metal, but I don't really know anything about that.
0: So, is it possible that one of these unsavory characters saw an opportunity to rob Barry? Did they follow him and learn his routine? Figuring out when he was likely to be alone and vulnerable. The police also discovered that Barry Rubri had had several clashes with various people over the months and years leading up to his death. That's normal, though, I think, for certainly people in uh, business to have some clashes with other people. And it reminded me of, and I cannot remember the names, but the Iceman Killer episode we did. So there, there Harry was. Barry
1: and Nicola Fuller. Who was it? Harry and Nicola Fuller. Harry
0: and Nicola Fuller, you've got a fantastic memory, yeah.
1: Only with some things, yeah. not with very much.
0: <laughs> so it reminded me of that because Harry, yeah. Harry Fuller was this Dellboy Boy character, larger than life, involved in lots of business dealings, had his finger in a lot of pies. And although it was essentially his financial advisor that, that killed him, there were lots of leads that pointed in the direction of dodgy business dealings, had somebody robbed him because he'd boasted about having lots of cash at home had somebody sought revenge on him for him getting one up on them in a business deal. So it reminded me a little bit of that. And that is quite normal in those business dealings to have clashes with people. So I'm not sure it's it's related to that, but it could be. Barry's close friend Chris Locke later told the media how Barry had been romantically involved with a local woman who had ultimately cheated on him with a member of the travelling community. This had reportedly turned ugly, and even though there had been no physical altercation, there was bad blood between Barry and some members of the nearby traveller site.
1: I think, again, like you said before, things that are quite normal, relationship breakdowns, and then falling out with that person's family or friends or um, something like that, that's quite normal in a lot of people's lives as well. So could yeah. be linked but it's also not the first time that someone's been with someone cheated and then the other people have got involved
0: yeah and they've not been murdered so usually that doesn't end in murder so i think you're absolutely right i think it's yeah it could could be that it's linked to that but it absolutely might be that it isn't furthermore the police heard how barry had also clashed with tradespeople parking on his land without permission and that had apparently resulted in fierce confrontations And he'd also had issues with local youths causing nuisance in the town. So, you know, lots of things coming out, but nothing that's a real smoking gun here. So we also have this theory from Steve Isles. So that's Barry's close friend, the man who had discovered Barry's body. And yeah, he did go to the media and say that he believed Barry had been killed as part of some kind of bizarre ritualistic ceremony. So yeah, his trouser leg had been neatly and deliberately rolled up above his knee and this was seen as a significant indicator to a rit- ritualistic killing. However, it is also, of course, possible that his killers did this to deflect the course of investigation away from themselves or that they knew of Barry's Masonic connections and did this to mock him. So, you know, there, there's any number of random theories here barry had had fallings out that it's someone from within the masonic lodge that it's uh, somebody just who he had upset or pissed off or that he had information on someone and had that in his house and they were looking for it i don't think we're ever gonna know sadly with this i I retain hope that something will come to light in the future as we have seen before but that might not happen and unless somebody is caught for this, we're never going to know, are we? Why? And I think it's the why that's so frustrating.
1: Do you want to know my totally unfounded theory based off of just this episode? Yeah. I think that the hog tying and the beating was, like we mentioned before, some sort of, like, torture to get information. And I reckon his trouser leg was rolled up as, like, a threat of, like, I will literally cut your leg or something. Yeah. And I think it was, like, a something along those kind of lines that he had either witnessed someone doing something or knew something about somebody and had that, like you said, had that evidence within his home somehow, maybe photographs or he'd taken something from somebody, and that's why I reckon. But the fact that there was potentially more than one person makes that less likely to me because if if you are the person who's done something wrong and someone's then you would go yourself otherwise you're in you're kind of telling someone else that you've done something because you need them to come and help you I don't know like unless he's really upset somebody with with criminal connections already but that's what my thinking is with the leg Depending on when it was rolled up, obviously if it was rolled mm. up afterwards, which you wouldn't know, would you? But if it was rolled up neatly afterwards, then it must be some sort of symbolic thing. But I reckon it was more of a, you tell me where such and such is, otherwise I'm going to start literally carving into your leg or, or something along those lines.
0: I-, I completely agree with you. I think if if I have to pin it on one thing, I think this is the act of somebody who was desperate, somebody who needed to get information that Barry had on them back into their safe hands before they came to harm or before the police came knocking at their door. They were desperate. They they had planned this. They had waited for Barry at his home. They had killed the light outside. They knew he was coming back from Masonic Dew that night or from something, and they pounced on him. And probably the plan was to tie him up and torture him for information Uh, Or maybe they'd already started ransacking the home and they couldn't find it, and they weren't leaving there without it. So you know, it doesn't matter what the consequences are. If we have to kill him to to find it, we will do that. And I've no doubt that they eventually got what they were looking for and got the hell out of there. But what it was, I don't know.
1: And I wonder if Barry, as like you know, a nice, normal, upstanding member of the community, genuinely felt like so. For example, he knows that mr white is doing xyz in his shop and he goes to him and says look i know what you're doing you need to stop and then mr white says yep i've stopped i will stop now i will not do it anymore and that's why he's then feeling all relaxed and calm again he's like you know what i've done the right thing in the world i've gone and spoken to this person i've told them what i know and they're not going to do it anymore whatever this thing is And that's why he's so relaxed and I think that makes me feel really worried that that is the case and I feel sad that he might have actually felt like he'd done the right thing, he'd gone and confronted someone, he didn't tell anybody else because he he wanted to give that person the opportunity to stop what they were doing or to return items that they had stolen or whatever was going on and maybe that's why he then said to his daughter, do you know what, it's all settled now?
0: Mm. And I don't, I really don't want to, settled. I don't want to besmirch his memory, but another potential avenue and, you know, absolutely might not have been this, but it could have been that Barry was blackmailing somebody and they had paid up and he had said, you know, yeah, that's the end of the matter. And I they...
1: reckon that the police would have found evidence of that, though, if there was blackmail.
0: I would have thought and the fact that
1: money wasn't taken it's a really interesting theory but the fact that they didn't take any of that cash and the police didn't find like they would have surely looked into his bank records to see if there was anything like that.
0: Barry was probably the kind of guy that had a lot of cash at home um, Mm. and dealt in cash if he was dealing in different business ventures. So maybe the, the cash
1: had been taken that was blackmail money but the police didn't find it because they didn't know it existed in the yeah, first place. Yeah, there was
0: no trace. I just don't know. It's one of those things mm. that you could send yourself around the bend trying to work it out. You really and, and could. And we we don't know what it is. And, you know, we, we'll we try and remember Barry as, as this grandfather and father, uh, real integrated member of the community that loved being out in nature, tending to his animals and in the land Having that he'd walks, acquired. Yeah. yeah. And that's how we have to remember him. But I mm-hmm. wanted to there is um a sort of statement I wanted to read that came out at a press conference. So on the second anniversary of Barry's death, the officer leading the investigation released an image of a footprint that was left at the scene. The sole of the shoe is likely to be from a trainer, possibly of a Nike brand. And I wanted to read this out. It's quite long, but I do want to read it. So at a press conference, the lead detective said, Barry Rubri needlessly lost his life two years ago, and I'm determined to find those responsible for this violent crime. Having come onto the inquiry only a few months ago and having met Barry's family, I can tell you that the grief they feel is as raw today as it was two years ago. They need to understand why their father and grandfather died at the hands of these people. We have a team of more than 20 people still working on this investigation, meticulously sifting through the hundreds of statements that were taken at the time and speaking again with those people who have provided information. The investigation has highlighted that it was very rare that Barry's property was empty when he returned that night. His neighbour who lived on the grounds was not home, his friend had moved out days earlier, and his partner had stayed at her own home. So there is more to, you know, Barry's life we've not touched on here. Um, There was a partner, there was uh, a friend living with him for a short period of time. So the detective goes on to say, I believe someone knew Barry would be alone, and that they would not be disturbed.
1: Yeah, that says a lot, doesn't it? Because that is, that is really, really rare. I know he says the word rare, but like, yeah how unusual when it's someone who just lives alone all the time or or has a partner but they don't live you know they go back and forth all the time and it's a new it's just unusual in this situation that this is totally out of the ordinary that he would be totally at home alone
0: yeah again just shows how planned it was it really was the detective finishes by saying this was a planned attack by a group of people And I would urge those people to think about their families and the life they lead. Your actions will catch up on you and your freedom could be taken away. If your allegiances have changed, then you may be able to limit the impact on your life by coming forward and talking to us. And finally, Barry's son and daughter, Philip and Julie Rubri said, It does not feel like two years has passed since Dad was murdered. It still feels like this happened just yesterday. We tried to move on, but it's very hard not knowing why Dad was taken from us in such a violent and horrific way. We would ask anyone who may know something, anything that might help us, to come forward and speak with the police. Please help give us some closure. And that's where I wanted to end, because you never know. If anybody knows anything about this, then it's never too late to come forward. And we know that allegiances do change over the years. And relationships come to an end and people don't need to keep the secrets that they were keeping at that time anymore. So if anyone knows anything, please do, of course, come forward. But yeah, a frustrating case for all involved, Um, of course, for his family mostly, but his friends too, and for that small community in which he lived. And this was an extremely violent murder that that kind of community would never have bared witness to before so it's so unusual and just so incredibly sad that that barry's life came to such a violent end in in the way that it did
1: well what an end to season nine mark because this is just really really heartbreaking and really sad but a, a really interesting case and um i'm really glad that you've brought it to to the show
0: Yeah, thank you. And um, yeah, we will be on a two-week break while we prepare for season 10.
1: But we've got some surprises while we're on our break.
0: We have, absolutely. And we'll be back (laughs) on Wednesday the 13th of September for our season 10 premiere. And we are now uh, celebrating our five-year anniversary of Seeing Red. So uh, yeah, we've got some some special things planned over the next couple of weeks.
1: Five years of this. Five years, it's mad. You've put um, up with me for five years, Mark.
0: Likewise. I'm not sure how you've done it sometimes. We now <laughs> get to go and discuss Lucy Letby over on Crime Wave. So if you're a Patreon supporter of that level and above, you'll be able to hear our thoughts on that. If you're not a Patreon supporter, then feel free to check out our content over there. So uh, all you need to do is head to patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. Otherwise, we will see you in a couple of weeks for our season 10 premiere.
1: See you then, guys. Bye.
0: Bye.